You're listening to a podcast by Mission Field USA, a church planting initiative of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. For more information and resources, visit lcms.org slash church planting. Hello, and welcome to the next installment of our LCMS Mission Field USA podcast series. I'm Reverend Dr. Steve Stave, Director of LCMS Church Planting. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Mark Larson, Manager of LCMS Church Planting. Hello, Mark. Hello, Steve. It's great to be with you today. Very good to be with you also. And we do have, uh, we don't have a lot of outside the LCMS folks that join us in our podcast. So we're really excited about having a subject matter expert galore in the world of church planting. And so today we have invited Daniel Yang, the director of the SEND Institute, who leads and oversees all of their initiatives. And I don't want to go into too much of his bio, because I really wanted uh, Daniel to kind of unpack for us, what is the Sen Institute and what is your role there? Yeah, well, first off, uh, Stephen, Mark, thanks for having me. And I'm honored to be uh, a non-Lutheran on your podcast here. So <laughs> I should say, though, I should say my, my parents, when we immigrated here to the United States in 1979, we were refugee immigrants from, at the time, Laos via the Thailand refugee camps. And they were sponsored and resettled by a Lutheran church here uh, in Illinois in the Quad Cities. And I'm pretty sure this is in 79. So the, you know, obviously the denominational structures were different back then, but they were Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Lutheran <laughs> church, and they they settled us. And that's where my parents became followers of Jesus in that little Lutheran wow. church in um, East Moline, Illinois. So I have some Lutheran well, connections in that area too. So oh, nice. is that right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's some, there's some Lutheran connections there. Very good. So I know that's how we cross paths. Mm-hmm. I've uh, helped with some think tanks. I know that the work that you do at the Send Institute really mm-hmm. is about gathering different denominations together to yeah. get you know a pulse on what's happening in the world of church planting, to provide resources and to come together to have good discussions. And again, just a, a good think tank of experts in their fields from a variety of denominations. But Daniel, tell us how you got your start at Send Institute and and kind of what what is your role there? Yeah, yeah. So you did a good job providing a, an overview of the uh, the purpose of the Sen Institute, and I'll, I'll explain it a little bit more, and then I'll, I'll back up and, and talk about how I got involved. When four years ago, when the institute was started, it was started with the hope and prayer that uh, we could begin to think better about church planting in North America, knowing that you know best practices serve a very you know helpful you know sector of practitioners. You know, when you think about best practices, you think about what's actually working and how do we do more of that. But we also realize that, like, as we're thinking about the future of North America, as we're thinking about the future of how to engage better evangelistically, we can realize that there's really no best practices for that, that it really is we're at a season in ministry in North America where perhaps some of our paradigms that we had been building on in the past were either kind of coming to an end or were evolving. And so if we don't think better about these things, we risk you know, doing more of what was useful 20 years ago, but maybe not so, so much useful for the future. So the Senate suit was, was, came together when Ed Setzer and Jeff Christofferson, Ed was the executive director, or is the executive director of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. And at the time, Jeff Christofferson was the vice president of the North American Mission Board 
overseeing their church planting. They came together and started thinking, how can our organizations come together so that we can serve all organizations better? And so the idea was that let's start a an institute for church planting in North America where we can convene uh, church planting leaders. So Steve, that's how you and I initially met was when we launched our best practices in church planting uh, systems. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do we help bring together those who are leading church planting organizations to number one, uh, continue to share best practices, but to number two, think about the future of church planting in better ways f- towards the future. And so that's what you know happened four years ago when the sentence was started. I was a church planter in Toronto at the time, and I was planting a multi-ethnic church in downtown Toronto. And we were there on year five, and the church was really, by all you know, all kind of metrics, we were doing really well. I also had a sense and a call that God was calling me to probably do things at a broader level, and uh, which included doctoral work, PhD work. And uh, it was really a season of discernment. And then I get a phone call from uh, Jeff Christopherson and Ed Stetzer asking me if I would consider coming down to start the Institute in Chicago here at Wheaton College. And so, you know, that began a season of discernment for me. And then I, you know, accepted the, you know, after actually saying no twice, <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to move my family and and start all over again, but we felt like this was the right thing. And it was uh, an honor to think about how I could use my, both my life experience and ministry experience to serve organizational leaders better. So we have been doing that for the last uh, four years now, convening leaders for best practices, doing research, but the research really just becomes uh, a reason for convening leaders. And then we have, we've formed a missiological council three and a half years ago, and that really is kind of like the brains of the Senate Institute where folks like Alan Hirsch, Linda Burkess, Scott Moreau, who's a leading missiologist in North America, Sam George, Global Diaspora Catalyst for Luzon, many others are really thinking about how do we actually think about church planning for the future. And so that's where we're trying to do is we're just trying to look ahead into the future just a little bit, get around the corner to think about how we can plant churches better. Very good. And, you know, you talked about the data and we've participated in some of that. And I, we've even included it in some of our own information that we've given to people to talk about, you know, how do you overcome some of these fears and obstacles if you really don't know what it takes to plant churches? And some of those keys that you gave to us were, you know, somewhat no brainers, but at the same time important just in terms of, hey, if you're going to plant a church, put it in a location that people can find. If you're going to plan a church, make sure that you're taking care of the church worker and their family. Mm-hmm. So some things that are somewhat basic, but, you know, important to really look at statistics and data that back up what those keys are. So we've certainly appreciated that. And you're talking about your work that you've done. And it is funny, Daniel, we do have some parallels in terms of we both kind of started in computer science and engineering mm-hmm. and doing our doctoral work on, you know, the world of inner cultural mission and all that. But mm-hmm. I have to say my computer engineering was from the right school and that would be Ohio State University. Wow. You- oh man. <laughs> Is it too late to hop off this call? <laughs> <laughs> no. I went to the University of Michigan just just for exactly. contact for everybody else. So exactly. a Wolverine wow. and a guy serving together in the kingdom. That's you know that only happens you know, when you have working with Lutherans I have no issue with, but working with Buckeyes <laughs> Boy, this has got uh, this has got harder for me. <laughs> All right, hang tight, brother. 
So we do appreciate your participation in giving us a lot of key information in terms of how do we go about encouraging church planning, getting past some of these, you know, obstacles that, you know, we just don't know where to begin and that sort of thing. But before we dive into some of that, Daniel, just, you know, with everything that's been going on and with COVID and everything that's been going on in the U.S. right now, can you, what is your big picture perspective then on kind of the state of church planning in the U.S. today? Yeah, that's a great question because I think we're still in the midst of it, right? I mean, especially those in the South, you know, we thought that we were going to get to some level of normalcy, you know, maybe by the end of the summer. And then you begin seeing that, you know, you know, I mean, things are starting to roll back and, you know, it's, I don't think we're going to go in lockdown again, but we just, you know, we just know we're, we're not out of the pandemic yet. And so that still has a very real uh, impact on um, the way that we think about church planting. You know, some of the key things that came out early uh, in the midst of church planting in the pandemic was, I'll, I'll list three things in particular. Number one, I think we, you know, all, all churches, not just church plants, but all churches begin to realize that if you don't just if you don't learn how to do ministry in, uh, in a decentralized fashion then then you know most of what churches were doing at the time couldn't couldn't work so if you had depended on just large gatherings then essentially ministry came to a halt so a lot of churches i would say you know most churches that we worked with i, I had personally had coached through 200 pastors through uh 90 day strategies for developing you know a response to the pandemic, most of them learn how to do ministry in a decentralized fashion. And what that actually allowed them to do was, you know, begin working on leadership development. And so not all churches, you know, did that many, you know, that, that this is where we saw a lot of pastors run ragged because they were trying to do ministry in the old paradigm when the reality is that those who actually ended up being able to continue to do ministry actually learn how to decentralize their ministry amongst, you know, many more leaders. And so those who didn't have small groups before actually began doing small groups and converted their Sunday schools into small groups, those kinds of things. So the big premium on learning how to effectively do decentralized ministry, that was a big thing. And so for the church plants that got started, and I'm involved in a church plant that got started June 12th of last year. So right in the thick of the uh, pandemic, we, we started off, you know, with decentralized, digitalized ministry right off the bat. You know, as a matter of fact, when we started meeting in person in centralized gatherings, it felt different and it felt almost like weird because we didn't start out that way. But I think what we were, we're seeing, you know, again, I've, I've interviewed at least a dozen church planters that planted in the midst of the pandemic, that they had to learn that it was primarily about meaningful engagement that that was where the work of the ministry was going to. And rather than, you know, the, the, the centralized gathering. <clears throat> and for a lot of them, when they began doing the centralized gathering, even though they didn't have the same, like, you know, typically when people launch churches, if they use the launch model, which is gather a core group of people and then declare a public Sunday as your, your first official Sunday, you know, typically, mm -hmm. you know, a launch large model might, you might see between 70 to 150 people. That's a, that's a pretty decent launch large model. You know, there you, you hear of churches doing 200, 300, 500 people coming to the first Sunday. But, you know, typically if you're 70 to 120, that's a that's a pretty decent, you know, a first Sunday. And even though church plants weren't seeing, you know, those numbers, <clears throat> what they realized was that 
the six to eight months that they were doing engagement, meaningful engagement, meaning meeting their neighbors, spending time, you know, remember back last year when we were all meeting our driveways, you know, in our lawn chairs, passing out stuff, you know, to our neighbors, you know, passing out toilet paper. We did that. We literally did that in my neighborhood, that those relationships matriculated into not the crowd that came at a typical launch large, but it became like real meaningful relationships that joined first gatherings in homes and backyards and rented spaces. And so I think we we saw that the centralized church was much more of a meaningful engagement and rather than just crowd gathering. And I don't want to gloss over that because I think that's going to carry forward into how we think about church planting more and more. Because that pairs with what we already know about hospitality, that pairs with what we already know about like the desire for people to have community. You know, so I think that that's going to be carried forward. The second thing that I think we see in church planting in the midst of the pandemic, you know, is is pretty obvious was the the digit the digital ministry. People are starting to use the phrase fidgetal now, which is kind of, you know, physical plus digital. And it's the idea that, you know, we have to learn how to do uh meaningful engagement through digital ministry. So this is not the same as projecting your worship gathering through Facebook. You know, that this is different. This is how do we use digital means to have meaningful engagement? And we see this with uh, even with ministries like Alpha. Alpha for a long time, Alpha is the ministry that is uh, essentially seeker-based ministry where it allows people to come and join a small group if they're not Christians and not have a interrogative, you know, threatening environment. They were resistant to online gatherings for a long time. They finally decided it was the pandemic to switch to online formats and they've seen tremendous gains. They'll never go back. They'll they'll continue to provide both a physical and digital ministry for for Alpha. And so I think again that's something that we've learned and are taking with us out of the pandemic. And then thirdly, I think what we're uh, seeing with church planters that have planted in the midst of the pandemic is that how you how you begin to think about multiplication is so much more basic than typically. You know, Steve, the research that you participated in that we put out best practices in church planting systems, we mm-hmm. tend to think about multiplication in terms of like how do we do residencies or how do we do apprenticeships, and and I think those are really high level. But we're realizing in the pandemic, like if you're going to mobilize people for ministry, it starts with basic like disciple making. Like how are you actually effectively making disciples at the most basic level so that they can be then leaders of small groups or missional communities or ministry teams? And it used to be that you had to be a big church that had a fully developed staff so that you can actually begin to develop pipelines within your church. But I, I don't think that, that I, those paradigms for like, you know, for having a high capacity staff in order for you to have those pipelines, I think that that's all gone away. We realize that, you know, moving forward, if we're going to make disciples that multiply, that regardless of whether you're a church plant of 12 to 15 people or a church plant of 150 people, that you need to have in place simple plans to develop people who can 
become disciple makers. Because again, it comes down to the personal touch engagement, which the pandemic has really forced us all to do. The isolation that we all lived in for at least the first 12 months of it proved to us that you can't do ministry if it's not meaningfully connecting with people at the personal level. I'll stop there, but I'm sure there's more that I've unpacked. Oh, sure. And, you know, it was always funny. I always leaned on the Reverend Dr. Dan Alger, you know, my Anglican buddy, because, you know, for us, you can imagine COVID is so difficult because we are an incarnational cruciform church body. So, you know, we are central to our mission and church planning is word and sacrament. Um, And then in COVID too, it did also give opportunities for different kinds of mercy work. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm also uh, involved with our inner city missions. And so there was a lot of work that could be done in terms of the needs that people had. And kind of what you're just now leaning towards too is I've been involved with a lot of different government organizations that have been expressing the tsunami of grief that has hit people. And I think that's one of the things that you all did a great job of also keeping a finger on the pulse. You know, there are people who have called themselves nuns who are opening up their Bibles now. You know, they were faced with the reality of death. Even, you know, people that claim to be atheists were coming out asking, you know, how do I pray? Mm -hmm. So like you said, you know, for us, it's so complicated because we want to maintain an incarnational word and sacrament church planting ministry. But at the same time, there are so many people out there in communities who are suffering from either massive needs, you know, with all the social issues that are only magnified by isolation or poverty and, you know, domestic violence, you name it, all, you know, addictions, all these things have only intensified since COVID. And then on top of that, pretty much everybody has to process so much grief. And how does the church then do both? How are you incarnational in your community, but how are you also reaching those people outside of the church who are suffering, who do need to hear the gospel? So I think what you were telling us in terms of that perspective is that COVID has changed things. It's made it more challenging for us, but it's also given us new opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're asking, you know, some huge questions that I think, you know, probably five, 10 years from now, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to look back to see if the church really showed up. And in some ways, I do think the church is showing up. In other ways, sometimes I feel like the church is behind. We won't get into, you know, politics or anything like that. But I think there, the social issues, I think, you know, we're kind of mixed. But, you know, there's an art article that Ross Douthat wrote for the New York Times. It's called Waking Up in 2030. And really, the premise of his article is this idea that the pandemic fast forwarded us 10 years, Mm -hmm. that what we're experiencing today, you know, in, you know, this second year that we've entered into the pandemic has kind of fast forward us to do things that probably we were waiting to do, but we are now deciding to do now because uh, we have either the excuse to do it. Or we have the, you know, it's it's the things that we put on the back burner have come to the forefront. So case in point, you mentioned mental health. Like that's a huge mm-hmm. thing. I think we all know that, you know, I do I do think that there's a sense in which like you can overdiagnose a society. Remember when everybody was being diagnosed, all the kids were being diagnosed with ADHD and sure. an overprescription of Ritalin and all those things. But, sure. you know, so there's always that potential. But the, there's also a real like a real sense in which like we live in a much more anxious time than, you know, than in recent history. 
And like, I, I don't, I think that, I think that's, that's just, um, obvious. You know, I think that's true. I think those who have lived through, you know, a generation and a half of life, they would, many of them would say that this is a very distinct time period in this generation that feels different from previous generations. And so I think when the church, we've been able to engage you know, mental health issues in terms of like Diane Laneberg, she, she writes, she said that trauma is the mission field of the 21st century. Hmm. And what she means by that is that the the more empathetic and the more nuanced the church is able to deal with things like trauma, like you know social catastrophes, generational catastrophes, if we can accept that these are these are framed around trauma, then we actually have a more powerful way to enter into these stories. If if we primarily see, you know, some of these things as social issues to engage. So let's say, for instance, you know, what we saw happen in in the midst of the spring and early summer of last year with the protests and and the riots. So we only look at those as social issues that we have to engage. And we're always going to probably have some kind of political lens or we're going to have some kind of, you know, framework to gauge where we, we don't engage with empathy. But if we see those things through the lens of trauma, then there's actually so much spiritual resources that scripture provides us for how to think about how to engage those things. And so when we think about the pandemic, it's induced so much trauma at every level. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity that is waiting uh, for us is the church to understand that, you know what, we may not, we may not, we may not be fit for the politics of what's happening. But we are specifically uniquely equipped to to deal with some of the mental and spiritual issues that are coming out of this isolationism being one of them you talked about. And then also the strain that this has on family, the strain that this will have on teenage suicidal ideation, which we're hearing is skyrocketing compared Mm -hmm. to previous decades. And then, you know, even with the transition, you know, uh, we're talking about outside of the church, but even inside of the church, the transition that you have with ministers and clergy the trauma that they've have faced in having to lead a church through a pandemic, you know, mm-hmm. we can probably sit here and talk about stories of pastors and, and leaders that we know have either left the ministry this past year and a half because mm-hmm. of the amount of mental, you know, stress they've been under. So again, just kind of the large to frame larger what you you you're getting at. There's some trauma that we're we're having to process right now, and if the church can embrace that and begin doing that, you know, through you know scriptural fidelity. On the other side of this pandemic, I think we're going to have some deep resources to provide for non-believers. Yeah. And I mean, one of the good things about our Lutheran theology is we understand that there are these two kingdoms and we do care for people as Christ did in mind and body and soul. And it gives us opportunities to serve our neighbor in Christ's love. But also with the two kingdom understanding is what a joy it is to know. Like you're saying, all these things can be put into some political box or whatever it might be, but we understand that we're all of a different kingdom. Mm -hmm. We all have one ruler over all of us who is the Prince of Peace. And what this Prince of Peace can do in his kingdom is nothing short of miraculous because it can overcome any barriers that we have between one another. When we understand that we all are fallen children of Adam and Eve, and yet Christ came to renew all things and to usher in a new kingdom, it gives you a good perspective of with 
church planting, how we can reach out to a community of things. There's no way. There's no way you can gather people of all these different backgrounds, ethnicities, political, you know, whatever it might be. We show them a different way. And they Mm -hmm. look at that and Jesus says, you know what? They will know that you are of this kingdom because you love one another as I have loved you. And what an opportunity for us to do mission work and for them to see this. And it, again, Jesus literally says that they, they will come to faith by seeing uh, the love that you have that can only come from the Prince of Peace. So, Yeah, that's you right. You know, and I was speaking to a church planter recently, and they, you know, they were meeting in a school, and it's obviously very difficult for church plants to meet in schools. You know, a vast majority <laughs> of church plants meet in schools, mm-hmm. and it's been very difficult for many of them to return. And instead of like adding to the anxiety of the, the, the principal, because, you know, mm-hmm. principals and our teachers are experiencing tremendous anxiety right now with yep. <laughs> the return to school and the, the mask, you know, do we yep. wear masks, not wear masks, you know, depending on which state, my, our state in, in Illinois now, they're trying to re-mandate masks at school for, mm-hmm. for children. And the church mm-hmm. plan just decided, you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to add that anxiety to our principal. And instead, what we're going to do, because we already know that the principal is already having to deal with these issues on a day-to-day basis. So we're going to ask the principal, you know, how can we best serve you in the midst of this like tension, you know, the politics of your school, of our, our school district, how can we come alongside you? We're not, we don't, we don't want your building. We'll figure out how to meet in other places, but we're, we're not saying that we're, we want you to hear that we're not stepping away from serving the school, even though we can't meet there physically. And I know that that sounds like a a very simple commitment, but it has profound effects and it has, it it really is, we're, we're really working through, Hey, we're committed, you know, to the people of this school district and not just committed to meeting in the buildings, you know? And I think that has a a tremendous effect long-term on your public witness Mm-hmm. to a, a certain community when you're saying that, you know, I know I can't benefit from you right now, but we're still here for you. As a matter of fact, how, how, how can we help alleviate some of the issues that you're having to deal with? So part of that is helping to facilitate these parental conversations around masks that they're mm-hmm. saying, can we provide a forum where we can help parents, you know, alleviate some of their fears on, on either side? And I think that's really innovative. We're taking the cultural tensions of our local communities. And we're saying, how do we create environments where we can work through that? We don't want to lead the conversation. We just want to help facilitate. And that's something that, you know, a basic church planter who has some basic pastoral skills, who, you know, that that's within the skill set of a, of a church planter. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of from a Lutheran lens, we would certainly encourage church planters in the midst of all this, you know, the language we might use is, you know, what are the human care opportunities? What is the mercy work that can be done? What are the ways that you can bring collaboration? You can bring reconciliation in communities right now because they desperately need it. And they're very often, as you just said, Daniel, looking to the church to help to facilitate that. So that's that's great. So I was hoping we could actually go a little bit pre-COVID from conversations it's that hard we've to, had. It's hard to remember what that was like. but Back in the day, Daniel, exactly. we had conversations with church leaders from a lot of different denominations from around the country. And we all struggle with encouraging church planning and, and kind of the role 
that we have with our denomination or network or whatever it might be, and trying to foster more planting. And part of the issue, obviously, there's the fear of the unknown, there's financial challenges, there's all these things. But just in terms of encouragement and using a good narrative to do that. And Mm -hmm. so I really appreciated the conversation that you had with us because it wasn't too long ago that Mark Larson and myself were starting Mission Field USA, and it had a very clear purpose. We wanted to really, and this is something that actually got voted on our Senate convention, and you know everybody said that the, our resources are the resources to go to, and let's make this happen, and set some numbers around it, and talked about how many missionaries we want to send to do this, and all the rest. But the idea was we really wanted to focus on cross-cultural mission Taking a look at the changing demographics that's happening in the United States, obviously the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod started primarily with German immigrants. And so that's very reflective of who we are and our initial mission practice. But even by the second LCMS president, he was saying there's going to be a slowdown of just reaching German-speaking immigrants. And there are going to be cities filled with people outside of the church. And how are we going to reach them? And so that really was where Mission Field USA took off. And the idea of doing multi-ethnic, cross-cultural ministries, getting back into the urban cores where we had lost our presence. And it was kind of hard for us not to say, you know, look at all these changing demographics. Look at our homogeneousness within our own church body, which just shows there are so many opportunities to reach all these immigrants and refugees who are flooding into the United States of America. And that would be our narrative would be, we see all these things happening. Our demographics don't align well anymore with the demographics of what the United States looks like. So let's have an initiative. So give us the weakness of that narrative and walk us through this crazy idea of what the arrival narrative looked like. Mm. Yeah, you, you you framed it, you know, perfectly. And and you know, I'll you know, I'll before I directly answer the question. I mean, I I I will say that you know, I last year or maybe it was a little bit before last year. You know, we lost a a friend of mine, a friend of yours, Reverend Ku Seeing, and yep. who's had a, a tremendous impact on both the Hmong community and then also you know LCMS at large. And you know. Good friend and counterpart at our St. Louis Seminary. If you never had a chance to meet him, you will never meet a better man in your life. And God rest his soul. Yeah, absolutely. And but he's he's a great example of how institutions like 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 yours and others have had to not just think about mission from one culture to another, but to think about mission from a multicultural base to to others, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a paradigm shift from thinking mission from Jerusalem to mission from Antioch, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think, and maybe I'm overplaying the point, but, you know, when mission was flowing from Jerusalem, which was, you know, if we think back to maybe Acts chapter 15, and that's where the Jerusalem council happened and they were, they had to decide on matters of, you know, what was essentially kosher for, the Jewish Christians, you know, there is a very one directional, you know, kind of command control of how mission flowed. And then, but it wasn't until you get to Antioch where you see essentially 
a more global phenomena of what it meant to do mission. And it wasn't just, you know, it was, it was geography based. It was possibly even social political, uh, politically based, but the ethnic diversity was already built into Antioch. You know, mm-hmm. and if you read Rodney Starks's uh, Rise of Christianity, you know he has a whole section devoted to the church in Antioch and why why they were called Christians for the first time in Antioch, and that was because all these different groups of disparate eth- ethnic groups came together, and it, they formed a new group of people that was so different from their ethnic groups, but they lived in such harmony and such purpose together that they, there had to be a new label for them, and it was there in Antioch that they were called Christians for the first time. And I think that's a very helpful paradigm for us to consider now in the U.S. because the idea, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but the idea of reaching the exotic other hmm. was really a part of the European discovery of the rest of the world, you know. And so as Europe discovered the rest of the world, they discovered the, you know, quote unquote, exotic parts of the world, whether that was the Orient in the East or you know, all the different, you know, in Latin America and, and the the idea of church planting, even though, you know, we can kind of trace that back to Paul's language of, you know, some plant, some sow the seed, some water. The idea of church planting was a very, that idea really was a big part of the Catholic church expanding along with colonialism. And so they would plant the church, the Catholic church in Latin America, you know, that, that language comes from, from some of that, you know, so again, it was part of the European discovery of the exotic others. And I, you know, I don't, and I don't think that's, you know, that we don't mean that necessarily when we talk about cross-cultural ministry anymore, but we also kind of get away from a paradigm that was established in Antioch. And that is that almost from the get-go, like missions was always a multi-ethnic endeavor mm-hmm. and the demographics in the United States, you, you can kind of think that it's always warranted that because even in the in the founding fathers, there was diversity. Obviously, the Anglo's kind of won out because the French and the Germans and and the Dutch eventually, you know, they they were swallowed up essentially by the Anglo's. But there is also this always the sense of like multi ethnicity. It might not have been multi racial, which is kind of a later concept, but multi ethnicity was always embedded there. But I think when things became convoluted, or not convoluted, conflated, when when the when the ethnicities became conflated, and then the idea of race was introduced, then that I think that's where a lot of the heartbeat of Antioch missions was lost, at least in the North American context. But we're now getting to this point now where uh, we begin to to realize that you know God is actually shifting the center of American or not American of global Christianity. Where you know two thirds of uh, uh, Bible believing Christians now exist outside of the global West, right. like this was uh, just recently put out by the Center for uh, Center for Christian Studies and uh, Global Christian Studies, Todd Johnson, and that that's something that in the Western world we have to we have to understand. Like we have to understand mm-hmm. that like the the shift has happened, which means that you know, there are multiple centers for Christianity. And that also means that there are other bases in which missionaries are being sent. And so not only are are we a sending, you know, entity here in North America, but we're also now a receiving entity where we receive missionaries from other parts of the world. 
And I sometimes kind of crudely, you know, put it in a joke, but you know, it used to be that whites in America would sit down and with the whiteboard and they talk about how do we reach, you know, Asians, Indians, Hispanics, you know, Africans. And literally now today in America, there are Africans, Indians, Hispanics, Asians that sit in a room with the whiteboard. And they ask this question, how do we reach white people? Sure. And, but more importantly, there are now rooms where, you know, that the people sitting in the rooms are, you know, Asians, you know, Anglos, Hispanics, and they're asking the question, how do we reach communities, you know, that mm-hmm. are around us? And so I think that that the arrival narrative of, you know, God is not just sending people here to North America so that we can reach them, but God's sending people here to North America so that they can reach North Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting to maybe somewhat of a, I wouldn't say it's quite a tipping point yet, but the phenomena is there that we need to acknowledge. Case in point, the the economists, both the economists in the Atlantic, you know, two secular publications, they've written about this phenomena of how other countries are sending missionaries to North America to reach North Americans. So if secular media is picking up on this, then it's really mm-hmm. important for our American-based mission organizations to begin to really develop not just the narratives, but then our organizational structures that can embrace this. And so part of this is that you know, it means that at the all levels of leadership, we need to begin to ask the question, what does it look like? How does a multi-ethnic leadership influence the way that we think about missions and our structures and our systems? And there's not a silver bullet answer, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the 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 brain that that is formulating these strategies are probably going to be a little bit more multi-ethnic than they have been 40 years ago. Yeah. And again, Kind of from a Lutheran perspective, Martin Luther talked about the gospel, and it's like a rain cloud. And it's possible that that rain cloud goes from the south to the west to the south. You know, the the gospel goes where the Holy Spirit wills. And so, and again, another example of that, as you were just talking about, you know, us in Mission Field USA envision that, you know, there's going to come a time where we're going to send an Ethiopian Christian now U.S. resident, obviously, to a refugee community in the U.S., and they're going to reach out to a Somali Muslim. And that's going to have a profound effect because this Somali Muslim is going to want to know, why is this Ethiopian Christian coming to help me and my family? Mm -hmm. And they are going to have such a great impact. But that, you know, as we get closer and closer to 2050 and this idea of no longer having the majority uh, ethnic group mm-hmm. that it, this is what mission work is going to look like. Yeah. And, and Steve, I think of another example is when there was the Assyrian refugees heading into Europe mm-hmm. and one of our, it wasn't the state church, but it was uh, one of our churches congregations reaching the Syrian Muslims for Christ. They're becoming Christians. And then this, the Syrian formerly Muslim were telling <laughs> the Germans <laughs> You know, this is what the gospel is because they lost it. You know, yeah. even they may have thought themselves to be Christians, and but, you, and you never you know, know. Yeah, yeah, you never so know. So it was just like it was like a whole step further that the the form the ones that were unbelievers became believers and missionaries yeah. to to the people. Yeah, yeah. Who, you know, who once were sending. Yeah. And even even flipping that, I know of an Anglo pastor who had a convert Chinese student wanted to learn English. They used the Bible was converted to Christianity, went back to communist China, and whole family was baptized into Christ. Mm. You know, it's just it, how God, you know, uses different 
But, but it's anyways, it's, it's the gospel. It's the yeah. gospel, right? <laughs> but what Mark just explained, Daniel, is like a perfect example of what I was saying when you laid out this arrival narrative. I don't know if I was the only sci-fi geek that was in the room <laughs> that said, hey, who's, who's seen this movie called The Arrival? And I don't know if anybody else had their hand up, but I certainly had because it was a sci-fi movie. But it is that it is that idea of bringing the gospel to them and then they come back. But yeah. can, you, can you still remember that? I mean, it's been a couple yeah. of years. You still yeah. lay out that, what the movie was and how that fits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a and it's a pretty profound like idea. I, I, you know, the the movie that you're talking about called The Arrival is about aliens that essentially are helping create a relationship between them and the humans because the aliens know that. I think the time frame was like, you know, it was like I think 300 years into the future or something like that they were going to need help from the humans. So it was the idea that they needed to teach the humans a certain skill set so that 300 years down the road, those humans could then help the aliens who would be in danger. And in, in the same way, again, that's kind of a, a metaphor, you know, metaphor, all metaphors break down, but <laughs> yeah, in the same ways, but a lot of missiologists would say this, you know, I mean, Andrew Walls, who recently uh, died uh, a few weeks ago as of this podcast recording, mm. you know, he was a big proponent of helping us to see and understand that, you know, the the quote unquote success of Western missions to the world, in a sense, and Kwame Bediako, who's an African theologian, he would say the same thing, and that one of the greatest things that Western Christianity did was it did bring the gospel to the rest of the world, and now the rest of the world is returning the favor, in a mm-hmm. sense that you know, you know, the rest of the world are they have have been faithful to the gospel, and now are in a sense coming back to the West and in different parts of the West, you know, including Europe and the United States. And in the case of evangelicalism, you know, so for for those of us who are evangelicals, part of what's keeping evangelicalism from declining rapidly compared to uh, more liberal mainline Protestantism is the the immigrant congregations, you know. And so Mm -hmm. if you were to adopt that metaphor from the Arrival movie, it's this idea that, you know, Western Christianity came to these different parts of the world to share the gospel, almost as if they knew that one day they would be in decline and they would need help from the global world. And I I think, you know, that's probably not too far off. I think it's true. But I think it's more about the the convergence and the coalescing of multiple Christianities. And that's one of our colleagues, Sam George, he would say in that way is that mm-hmm. there are multiple Christianities. And that's not to say that there are multiple, like, you know, Gospels, and, and, and but the idea that there are, there are so many different multiple Christianities and they're all converging now. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. How do we imagine missions in, in the places where they converge? And I think mm-hmm. that's the, the opportunity that's in front of us for 21st century. Yeah, awesome. And again, just if we put this into kind of an LCMS perspective, we can boast in the Lord. I mean, starting way back when, especially when you think about our first missions to India, we have church partners all over the world. And even places that you can't go to, perhaps a Muslim country, we have partners who then can help us to do the ministry there if we can't do it ourselves. But we have helped to establish self-sustaining church partners around the globe. And so what Daniel's description is, 
because we have done that, we have planted that seed, it has taken fruit, that means that all these Christian church bodies from around the world where now people are immigrating back to the United States, how do we tap into that as a great, great resource? And I'll give you just kind of an example in our own LCMS world. We have a lot of struggles in our inner cities with small congregations being able to survive. We had one particular church in Baltimore that, you know, was on the verge, probably, I think it's fair to say, of closing the doors until a Liberian immigrant showed up at church one day Mm -hmm. and said, I have found my church. Mm -hmm. And that Liberian also happened to be a trained evangelist. Mm -hmm. He went door to door in the surrounding neighborhoods of that church and invited other Liberian people to come. It became the only congregation in the Baltimore City area that began to prosper and grow. How do we kind of view this arrival narrative, be proud of the work that we have done to establish church partners around the world and the conversions that have taken place because we were willing to go and to plant that seed? Now see, you know, unfortunately, kind of a decline in mainline congregations across the board in the U.S. and say, What can we do better to take advantage of these resources that God has put right in front of us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I think that that's going to be an ongoing project for a lot of institutions that have, that they essentially saw their heyday maybe 40, 50 years ago, because I think in some ways our our structures and paradigms for, for ministry they were developed in a time when the the demographic makeup of North America was very different than it is today. You know, yep. I, I don't. And a part of this is, I think, and you all have done this as well in in a couple of different ways. But I don't think you can always just take an existing institution and 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 redo it. But there have been a lot of innovations where you create parallel organizations or parallel initiatives that come alongside is existing structures so that it can allow for a little bit more innovation so that maybe people who couldn't serve in the past could now serve you know you know credentialing is like one of those easy things where i think many of us it, it's not just the lcms but a lot of other organizations have had to find some innovative ways to provide credentialing to those who typically could not go through our typical systems hmm. in order for them to, you know, either lead a church or, or plant a church. And I think that there's going to be more of those kinds of things that are going to happen to account for, let's say, for instance, like language, like language is a challenging thing for Hispanic for organizations to really adapt. You know, everybody's trying to do something in Spanish right now, and mm-hmm. which the reality is that probably should have happened 20 years ago. Yeah, everybody, yeah, and you know, it's just not, it's just not, definitely not just you all. I think in my mm-hmm. own denomination, we just now begin providing church planting assessments in in Spanish, and you know, that's a a very practical concern. But I think a part of us has to begin to reimagine and say that, you know, how do we not try to have a Spanish track within our institution, how do we actually just empower Spanish, Hispanic, you know, Latino leaders to Mm -hmm. lead from their Latin heritage? And I think, you know, I I think everybody is okay with having a Spanish ministry within the organization. 
I'm not sure if everybody's ready yet to have, you know, a Latin-based organization here in North America. I use that as an example, but I think there's going to be more things similar to that that will continue to happen in order for us to see a true, you know, I would use the word indigenous. I think that's that's kind of, you know, been overused these days. Sure. But to see indigenous like leadership develop here in North America from immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, to kind of say it succinctly, we need to continue to do things in our existing organizations to provide more space for all kinds of people. We need to not be afraid of developing parallel organizations so that, you know, their leadership can continue to flourish. So to our listeners, I think uh, what Daniel is saying is that you all need to get on board with the Mission Field USA initiative <laughs> right now. Exactly what I'm saying. They, right. They are putting all these pieces together, working with our seminaries, immersive language training, helping to raise up people and even serving in the margins. And that's that's what we're all about. So what I'm hearing Daniel say, listeners, is that we all need to get behind <laughs> Mission Field USA. <laughs> So, Amen. 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 But all joking aside, you know, one of the things that we have done in Mission Field USA is kind of the first of its kind. It's the largest study that I know of for LCMS mission work here in the U.S. Found a lot of good insights, worked with every single one of our districts to, to get input and to really crunch the numbers and, and everything else. One of the things that might not have come up even in our research, and we talked about this a few podcasts ago, but the need for an outward focus on new mission opportunities. And one of the last things I want to talk about, and Mike's, I, I mean, there's kind of been a little bit of a hypothesis that, mm -hmm. you know, we did, like you were just explaining, Daniel, is that most mainline denominations had a time where, wow, a large number of our congregations are beginning to kind of stagnate or they're in decline. And that might have put us on course of kind of especially through COVID, a survival mode, concentrating on the very important work that needs to be done for revitalization, but maybe not understanding that one of the best ways to revitalize an aging uh, congregation that's in decline is actually to look at new mission work. And mm -hmm. one of the advantages of even planting a daughter congregation is that it will give you more vitality. Mm -hmm. So Daniel, I would really love to get your, your thoughts as we wrap this up about why is church planning still important today for the Christian yeah. church? Well, you know, if you think about a, a healthy family that is, you know, relatively you know, healthy in the sense that, you know, uh, my family, for instance, I've got five kids and my wife has this proclivity of, you know, my 20-year-old my is, you know, getting to this point where does he live with us? Does he move out? And every mom wants their kids to stay with them to a certain point, you know, to a certain extent. If they're responsible, you know, if they contribute, you kind of want them to hang around a little bit longer. <laughs> the healthy family is, you know, there's always this process of sending people out, always this process of graduating people into adulthood. It's built into the Adam and Eve narrative, you know, be fruitful and multiply. God's intent from the very beginning was to have mission, you know, emerge from healthy family structures that multiply. And yes. I think, and in some ways, I think churches are like that. If a sign of a healthy church is one that is good at sending people out. And those people may do various different things, but church planting is probably going to be a part of that. 
where they, you know, have taken their experiences with them into new contexts and new environments and start new communities. And that's a part of, I think, a healthy system. I actually think that, you know, legacy churches aren't always, you know, they're not supposed to be around for 120, 200 years, 300 years. You know, I think if they are around, they're around because of their their progeny in, in a sense. And so churches that are, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old that have never planted. I don't say this in condemnation. I just say this to kind of help people to think through the paradigm for their church. But if you're a church that's 50, 60 years into it and you've not like planted a church, you know, part of it is just saying, okay, you know, maybe we should have had some children by now. <laughs> and this is a great opportunity to, to begin exploring what does it look like for us to have children as a, a, a healthy church. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that always means that you have to plant your own sustainable church, but participating in that process, being a part of a network or an organization that is participating in that, being a faithful um, supporter of a church planting network, Mission Field USA, I'll put the plug out there. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I think that's a part of it. And when we think about the renewal of uh, nations, we think about, you know, the United States, and I'm kind of hearkening back to a heyday of the 50s and 60s. That's really where we saw a lot of denominations kind of begin to, to emerge as, you know, larger uh, organizations. It was primarily through rapid church planting. Hmm. And so I think a big part of the opportunity that's in front of us now, especially as we come out of the pandemic, is that we have a lot of freedom to test what are some new expressions of church that are effective ways within the, you know, within our traditions, but that are effective ways in which we can reach and disciple people. And I think the pandemic has given us a little bit of permission to do that. And I think that you probably will probably fail, you know, eight or nine times before you actually see, you know, some successes. (laughs) But we are on the mission field of USA. This is a frontier environment now, you know. This is a front. This is why I said we don't, it's not about best practices. We will have to innovate ourselves towards the future and not practice things that we knew worked 40 years ago. Amen. Well, that was awesome. I mean, that's a good way to kind of close the conversation and really encourage people. And, you know, let's let's not be abstinent. Let's <laughs> let's about healthy families and, and mothers giving birth to children and and be about the mission field and going out as pioneers, as we always have. You know, we used to send, you know, whole families and a clergyman out west into the frontier to be pioneers, not just of the land, but also with the gospel and to go and to sow the seeds in the mission field. So Daniel, really appreciate your all of your expertise today. I wasn't sure if I was going to say anything, but I think I will. I'm kind of signing off from Mission Field USA. My work here at the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is coming to a close. I've taken a call to serve an organization called LAMP Ministry. They go into the most remote areas of Canada and just say, you know, I'm I'm going out there to put my money where my mouth is, to go out into the very, very frontiers to the ends of the earth and the mission of Christ Church. But thank you, I want to say, to all of our listeners who have supported Mission Field USA, all of our missionaries who have gone out and been those pioneers, all of those churches um, who have taken on that burden and 
loving task of being a parent and being involved with uh, supporting mission work across the U.S. I, I hope and pray that this is a legacy that only continues to build upon itself in terms of reaching this huge demographic of unchurched people. Again, the United States of America, the third largest population of unchurched. And we need to consider how do we best use our resources, keep that arrival narrative in the back of your mind that Daniel has described, and think of what ways can we as a congregation participate in going out into those fields, plowing and planting the seed. Mark Larson, I thank you, my brother. Thank you, Steve. I'm going to miss you very much. Miss you too. It has been an absolute pleasure to work with you. I know that you will help to to carry on the the mantle, and we continue to really pray upon this Mission Field USA initiative and sending missionaries even in the margins of the U.S. But hey, Daniel, I can't think of a better guest to have with me for my final podcast in Mission Field USA. You are the man. Hey, Steve, I appreciate your work and, and your friendship. So I, I know God has some amazing things planned for you. So, And I, I also was in Canada, so I'm excited that you'll be there. So God bless you. <laughs> I hear it's cold, but beautiful. But <laughs> And please do check out there in Wheaton at the Billy Graham Center, the Sen Institute. Again, they put together a lot of good research and information about church planting. Continue to take a look at what Daniel is out there doing. And Daniel, I just pray that your work will continue to also blossom and that you have a great effect for the kingdom all across the United States. Thank you, my brother. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thanks to our listeners. Let's go out there and plow the fields in Mission Field USA. Thanks for listening to the Mission Field USA podcast for church planting. Visit lcms.org slash church planting for other resources and information to share your ideas and to contact us. The Mission Field USA podcast is a production of the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in partnership with KFUO Radio. The Lord be with you.